church family. Uh, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it to Matthew chapter number 8. Matthew chapter number 8. We're going to look at uh, a passage of Scripture there in just a few moments. Uh, we've been going through a series titled, Not the Same. Um, in that series for the last, I guess this makes 13 weeks, uh, we have been looking at different encounters that people in the Gospels had with Jesus. And of course, what we've discovered is, as they've left that encounter with Jesus, they left there not the same. And the reason this has been so uh, important to our lives is because when we encounter Jesus, we also leave that moment not the same. So Matthew chapter 8, as you're heading in that direction, uh, I wanted to ask you a question this morning. Uh, any people in the room this morning, what you would call control freaks? Anybody out there that you would say, I am a control freak, that you like to know that you are the one that is always in control? Now, personally, I wouldn't consider myself to be a control freak, but I certainly like to know that nothing happens without my authority. Now, it may be that that is the definition of a control freak. So I don't know, but uh, maybe for me, I do like to know that what's happening is happening because I want it to happen. Anybody else out there like that? It's happening because you wanted it to happen the way in which you wanted uh, it to happen, right? So uh, this reality for me personally has never uh, been more real or more apparent in my own life than when I first started driving. Can anybody remember when they first started driving? I know for some of you, uh, you're like, I just always remember driving. It's been a little while ago. Uh, for some of you, you're getting ready to start driving, and so it's extremely relevant. And for others, you're like me, and maybe you go, yeah. Uh, I, I remember the first time uh, that I began driving on my own. Now, for me, you say, Danny, why, why does this make you uh, really apparent with the control freak kind of nature that's in your life? Well, for me, I remember the control that I felt over my own existence when I got a car and a driver's license and I could be able to do or, or start doing whatever it was that I wanted to do. As a matter of fact, I started driving before I got my driver's license, which I certainly wouldn't recommend. As a matter of fact, I put a note to leave that part out, but I said it, so it doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, I got a job when I was 14, and I worked on a lot of Sundays. Um, I know that's not necessarily what, what we promote, but I did. Uh, I, was, I was young. Uh, of course, I went to school all week. The, the place that I worked at was not open uh, in the evenings, but their prime time was on the weekends, and so I worked a lot of Sundays. Sundays were one of the few days that my parents typically had off, and so they didn't want to go anywhere or do anything. They just wanted to be able to relax on that day, and so I would take the car, and I would drive myself to work. Now, Typically, I'd get up early, I'd go to Sunday school like every good person in the world should do, and then I would leave from church and I would go to the Colonial Inn, which was a full gospel singing restaurant. And so that's where I worked. I was a waiter. I'd have to get there a little bit early so I could help get everything set out, and uh, the bands would all, would all start getting ready and they'd start playing music and we'd get everything together and we would wait for people to come. And I remember those first times on Sundays, driving myself to that job. Now, here's my point. It doesn't matter where I worked or what I was doing. For me personally, there was nothing more exhilarating than knowing that I was in full control of my own life during those work days. Now, you may say, Danny, you really weren't. I understand, all right? But in those moments, 
I had a driver's license. I had a car. I went where I wanted to go, and that was pretty awesome uh, for me. I felt like I was in control of the world. I left when I wanted to leave. I could go anywhere. Here's really what settled for me. Here was the, here was the big picture in my mind. I had the keys, right? Like, has anybody ever had, had that moment where you saw a couple or a family or whatever, and the family started to leave, but uh, the mom's still lingering around talking to everybody, or the dad's still talking to everybody, and you looked at them and said, you better hurry up, they're going to leave you. And then the dad or the mom, whoever it is, looks over at you and goes, no, they can't leave me. I've got the keys, right? Like, they're not going to go anywhere without me because I am the one who is in control. And listen, for me, it was in these days that I felt like I was literally in control of everything in my life. And for me, that was exhilarating. Why? Because who would be better to be in control of my life than me, right? When it comes to everything in my life, wouldn't it just be easier if I could control everything, if I could call all the shots? As a matter of fact, listen, that doesn't just happen in our personal lives, right, with each of us. That trickles into everyday life as well. Let me give you a couple of examples. If I was in control of our neighborhood, we'd be doing things better around here, right? If I was in control of our city, if I was in control of, of, of this office, if I was, you know what, listen, listen, listen. If I was the president of the United States of America, things would not be happening the way they're happening, right? Any control freaks out there that really think if you had control of everything, things would be better. I think a lot of us think that way, especially when it comes to our own lives, that if we had more control over what was happening, it would be better. It would be better if we had the keys. And I think this control moment happens for a very simple reason. If I had more control, things would go better, maybe not for the whole world, but guess what? Things would certainly go better for who? For me, right? If I was in control, things would go better for me. Now, there's a flip side of that, too. I think people fit into that control freak kind of category. But then I think there's the flip side where you might be in here today and you're like, Danny, I don't want to control anything because I've tried that before and it just doesn't work. And even though I, I tried really hard, and even though I tried to do everything I was supposed to do, it just didn't happen the way it was supposed to happen. I did the right thing, but the result was still bad. Or I worked really hard, but I, I still got fired. Or I made healthy choices, but I still got sick. Or I took care of someone exactly how they said, but they still died. Or I prayed as much as I could for a situation to get better, but nothing actually happened. And people typically fall into two different categories. They want to take control of everything because if I control it, it will be better. Or they want zero control and don't want to do anything because I can't make any difference anyway, so why even try? And I thought to myself, if these are the only choices that we have, the only responses that we can live by, it doesn't sound like the future is very bright. Danny, if I can't control everything, then, then what am I going to do? Or if I can't really control it, then why should I care at all? And if those are the only two sides that you can fall on, that is extremely sad. But the truth is, there's a better way to respond to life. There's a third option that seems to be a better 
option. I want to show it to you. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 8, as a man who has a lot of control over a lot of things in his life is faced with a situation that he cannot control, and he approaches Jesus. Here's what happens. Matthew, chapter 8. Let's start reading in verse number 5. says, when he had entered Capernaum, who is he? Any guesses? Right, you're, you're catching on, right? If I ask who he is, typically the good answer at church is always Jesus, right? So when he, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, He marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Can you imagine that statement, by the way? I'm going to read it to you again. With no one in Israel have I found such faith. You mean he didn't with John the Baptist? Apparently not. You mean he didn't with the other disciples? Apparently not. You mean he didn't with the other people who were healed, the other people who experienced miracles? Apparently not. Nowhere. Within his own people, had he ever found faith like this? And he says, verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus, bless the reading of your word today. May we be filled with your truth so that we can live obediently to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now we encounter this moment with Jesus and this centurion, a guy who, by the way, has a whole lot of authority, and he finds himself at the feet of Jesus because he has nowhere else to turn. Doesn't matter his resources, doesn't matter his authority, it doesn't matter what he can or cannot do. None of that matters in this moment because the one thing that he needs is beyond his ability. Now imagine this, you're a control freak, and when you say something, someone does it, and when you say jump, they say how high, and you get to a moment where you can't control what happening. In this moment, here's what you discover. No matter how great your ability is, it will always at some point run out. You have limits. But guess who doesn't? Jesus doesn't. So why rely on the limits when you could rely on the limitlessness of Jesus himself, right? This is why Jesus said, He marveled at this man's faith. How hard must it be, by the way, to make 
Jesus marveled. There is nothing that he has not seen. All of creation exists by his great name, yet he encounters a faith that makes him marvel. And I thought to myself, if that kind of thing makes Jesus marvel, maybe there's some things we can learn about our own faith as we encounter this moment with this guy and Jesus. So that's what I want to do. I want to show you a couple of things about our faith that is extremely important from this encounter. Here's the first one. Number one, faith requires action. I can't do it on my own. My ability at some point runs out. I can try to control it or I can just give up completely. Those are my options. Or I can seek a better way. What if instead I decided to rely on Jesus? What if my faith was placed in him? Well, if that's the case, number one, faith requires action. Look back at verse number five. It says, when he had entered Capernaum, who was he? Jesus, thank you for that. A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Now, there's a couple things that I want to point out from the beginning of this encounter that I think are interesting. The first is that this man is a centurion. He is a Gentile, by the way, hated by the Jews because they were outside of the covenant with God. He was a Roman, also hated by the Jews because they were enslaved by them. He is a leader in the army, a commander of approximately 100 men. He's an officer in charge of the Roman military stationed in Capernaum to govern the people of that city. Also, we discover something else that's interesting about this guy. He is apparently a Jewish fan. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, in Luke's account of this story, we're we're told that he loved the Jewish nation and actually built their synagogue for them to worship in. This is in Luke 7, verse 5. Now, what this really kind of gives us a picture of, this centurion, this Gentile Roman leader in the army who's a fan of the Jewish people, kind of gives us some insight into the fact that he probably had a lot of power and he probably had a lot of money, not only because of the amount of authority that was given to him, but also what he was able to cause happen within his region. This guy, in other words, is kind of a big deal. But in this moment, this guy who's a big deal, what we actually find him doing is he comes forward to Jesus appealing to him. Now, the word for appealing is the Greek word, which means to ask for something earnestly. The word, by the way, is a present active participle, which helps us to understand one thing that's important. He will not stop. He will continue to ask of Jesus what he needs because he knows there is nowhere else that he can go. Appealing to Jesus means this. I don't care if Jesus kept walking. This guy was following. I don't care if Jesus stopped to have a conversation with somebody else. When he looked over his shoulder, guess what? That guy was still there. I don't care if he stops to get something to eat or if he tries to cross over the side of the sea. I don't care where Jesus is going and what he's going to do next or what he's trying to do. Here's what I will tell you. This guy will be there appealing to Jesus, following after him because he has a need that no one else can deal with. Makes me feel as though the man will continue to ask, continue to appeal so that Jesus will help him. Either Jesus is going to do something or nothing was going to happen at all. Now listen, this story is on the heels of 
the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached, known as the Sermon on the Mount. Could be possible that this centurion guy was there on the side hearing everything that was said. It's possible that he saw some of the miracles that took place before this encounter. Whatever the case may be, here's what I know. This guy's faith was not the kind that was just going to sit back and hope something happened for him. This guy's faith was an action type of faith because he was willing to go, he was willing to follow, he was willing to appeal in order for Jesus to do something. And I thought to myself about my own faith. When was the last time that I went to Jesus about something so serious that I was unwilling to leave until Jesus did something? How often do I go to Jesus not taking no for an answer, but begging and appealing and asking and seeking the only one who can make a difference? Jesus teaches about this kind of persistence often. Matter of fact, Luke chapter 18, the very first couple of verses there, you read this story about a, a woman who goes before a corrupt judge and he will not answer her. But because he does not leave the judge alone, here's the statement that the judge makes. He says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And listen, here's what Jesus said. Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? No, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Matthew, I mean Mark chapter 11, verse 24, Jesus said, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Even the apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. As a matter of fact, there's an old legend about a guy named Honey. I don't know if that's actually how you say his name. He lived in the first century, generation before Jesus, in between the intertestamental period when the prophets had ended, but before the Son of God had come. And in the story, the legend goes that the city was in a great drought. It was just outside of Jerusalem, and they were in such dire need of rain. And Honey decided that he was going to seek after God until rain happened. And so here's what Honey did. Honey took a, a, a piece of land outside the walls of Jerusalem, and he took a stick, his staff probably, and he drew a circle around the place in which he was standing. And he stayed in that circle, and here's what he did. He called out to God and said, God, I'm not going to leave this circle until you bring us rain. And I don't know how long it lasted. I'm not exactly sure how the legend goes completely, but I know he stayed there inside that circle until rain came. And then rain started happening, but the rain was too much. And so he said, I'm going to stay in this circle, and I'm going to pray, God, this rain is, is kind of devastating things. So could it be a little bit better rain for us, God? And so he stays there, and God slows the rain down until it's this calm, gentle rain that was prosperous for his people. And I thought about that legend, and here's what I thought about. Do we have that kind of persistence when it comes to our faith in God? 
do we realize that he is the only one who can make a difference? And rather than relying on every other possible thing that we can rely on, when is the last time that we went to Jesus with active faith and said, I'm not leaving until you do something. I'm not going to stop following because you are it. Jesus, here I am, regardless of how good I am, how much money I have, how powerful, how much authority, what my status is. God, I don't care about any of that because Jesus, you are better because that's what happens. This guy who is so used to saying a word and everyone doing it realizes that he has zero ability to do what needs to be done. So what does he do? He goes to Jesus. Hey, friends, I don't know what else you've tried in this room this morning, but when was the last time you took whatever issue it was that you had? Maybe it wasn't some kind of healing like we're about to see. Maybe that's not it. But whatever that issue is, when's the last time you said, you know what, I'm going to stop trying to seek everything else. I'm going to go after the one who can actually make a difference. Listen, faith requires action. Let me show you the second one. Faith is seen best when all hope is gone. Faith is seen best when all hope is gone. Look back at verse 6. Here he is, Roman centurion, fallen down before Jesus, following after him, appealing to him. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So there it is. There's the issue, right? There's the thing that he can't fix. He had a lot of great abilities. He had a lot of great power. He had a lot of great authority, but he encountered something that he could not handle on his own. How many people in this room have encountered something that you couldn't handle on your own? Raise your hand up. If that's you, raise your hand up. Look across the building. Keep it up. Keep it up. Raise your hand up. I've encountered something I couldn't deal with on my own. Everybody in this room is been there. Here he is, my servant, paralyzed, suffering terribly. I need help. I got to thinking about that word servant, and I thought, man, if this is just a simple servant, why doesn't he just put somebody else in that place and allow this man to die in peace? Now, I discovered that the word servant's kind of interesting here. It's not like a typical slave of any kind. Matter of fact, the word for servant is a Greek word which can also mean child, by the way. It's possible that this is actually a child of this centurion that is paralyzed and suffering terribly. However, personal servants also at this time are most likely your right-hand kind of men within your business. This guy probably is extremely valuable because of their position in regards to their master. They had control over many things, were highly trained and extremely knowledgeable. This person was very important, whether it was a child, a personal assistant, his right-hand man. I don't know who it was, but apparently he was close enough and important enough that this guy would seek out Jesus to do for him what he could not do. There was nothing that could be done, humanly speaking. But we remember what Jesus tells us later in Matthew 19, 26, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And listen, when we come to a point in our lives where we realize that God is the only one who has the power to do the impossible, listen to me, faith is born. I've heard it put like this, faith is born when hope is dead. Now, I'm not talking about hope in yourself. The hope that you can do 
something or that you can control something is useless. The hope that if you're the one with the keys, everything will work out as it should. I'm talking about the kind of hope that places it in you rather than in Jesus. Some of us in the room, I'll include myself, maybe not looking for physical healing like this man's looking for, but there is something that you've been trying to control or handle or fix on your own that you can't fix. And listen, he was hopeless because his ability was limited, but Jesus was his hope because his ability was limitless. And Jesus says, verse seven, look back at it. I will come and heal him. This is Jesus's immediate response to this man without question. He doesn't ask where he is. He doesn't ask how bad it is. He doesn't ask how long it's been. He doesn't ask who this guy is or even what his name is. He simply says to the request, I will come and I will heal him. There was no one else who could heal this man, but Jesus said he could. When you finally come to the end of hoping in yourself and your ability, then Jesus can be the hope that you need. I love the way I read it just this past week. Jesus will come and heal when we come and appeal. How many of us are looking for healing that we're trying to find in every other possible way when God's saying, if you'll just come to me, Jesus will come and heal when we come and appeal. The other thing that I think is so awesome is that in this immediate response, it proves to us that even though Jesus is the only one who has the power to change things, he also wants to change them. He wants to love you. He wants to do good for you. He wants to serve you. He came not not to be served, but to serve. He came to save the world, do you not think he's still wanting to do that now? Here's a man who has so much control of so many things. He has authority, he has power, he has resources, yet even he needed Jesus to do things that he couldn't do. I wonder how many of us in the room this morning need to be appealing to Jesus today because all of us are dependent on Jesus just like this guy is dependent on Jesus. Stop relying on your ability and start trusting in him. Let me show you the third thing about faith that I discovered from this encounter. Faith is strongest when we are weakest. Faith is strongest when we are weakest. I love what happens next. The beginning of verse eight, the centurion replied, Lord, talking about Jesus, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. How many of you have felt that kind of weight before? I am unworthy, God. Jesus, you wanna do this in my life? You wanna work like this? You're you're gonna do what? You're gonna use me how? No way, God. I am so unworthy of what's happening now. This is exactly how this guy felt. Now, according to Luke's account of this story, it's in Luke chapter seven, the first 10 verses, the man sent Jewish leaders to ask Jesus to come and help him. And then even when Jesus came, he sent servants out to meet him rather than allowing Jesus to come to his house. Why? Well, I think he did all this because he didn't feel worthy enough for Jesus to step into his house. I think he did all of this because he knew his place compared 
to Jesus. Matter of fact, in Luke's account, the Jewish leaders gave one simple reason why Jesus should feel obligated to help this man. Listen, this man goes, I'm not worthy. Don't even step into my house. I shouldn't be anywhere around you. I am lowly compared to you, Jesus. But that's not how the Jewish leaders approach Jesus. In Luke 7, verse 4, here's what it says. And when they came to Jesus, talking about the the Jewish leaders that this man asked to go and appeal on his behalf, it says, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Now listen to this difference. These guys go out and meet Jesus, and they say, listen, if anybody's worthy, this guy is worthy. Then the centurion encounters Jesus, and he goes, Jesus, no, 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 I'm so sorry that that was ever a comment that was ever made. I am unworthy. But listen, the Jewish leaders, they went even further. They said, here's why he's worthy in Luke chapter 7, verse 5. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. They're like, listen, Jesus, this guy's the real deal. He needs you. Don't worry about anybody else. This guy matters most. He is worthy for you. You see, they said to Jesus, you must go to this man because of all that he's done makes him worthy. However, the centurion knew his place. He knew that he was not worthy of Jesus. In other words, listen, there is nothing that men can do to be worthy of what Jesus has done. Nothing. I don't care how great you are. I don't care what incredible things you've done. I think about uh, uh, Paul's writings in Philippians that we'll read in this next week in our Bible reading plan when he looks back on all that he's done in Philippians chapter 3 and says, I don't count all of those things worthy. No, no, no. He says, I press on to what comes next. What's Paul saying? There's nothing he can do to earn the favor of Jesus. There is nothing that men can do to be worthy of what Jesus has done. But he built the temple for us, Jesus. But he, but, 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 but he loves our people. Jesus. But he's done everything right on our behalf. The centurion goes, no, 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 Jesus, listen, I am unworthy. Why is this so big? Because faith is strongest when we are weakest. Listen, the Bible is clear that the only way for us to be healed and made right with God is through us simply believing and trusting him, Jesus, and his ability to save us. Listen to this from Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But don't stop there. Look, check this out. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Listen, he says it again later in Romans 5. He goes, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This guy knew what all of us certainly need to know, that he was unworthy of Jesus. But Jesus was also the only one who could do anything at all. Listen, he had nothing to offer. He had no authority to exercise. He had no power to display. He was simply at the mercy of Jesus. Can I tell you something, friends? Thankfully, the mercy of Jesus is enough. You say, Danny, how do you know? Listen to this from Ephesians chapter two. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Listen, this guy had all the resources to do anything he wanted to do, but he couldn't heal his servant. At some point, we all must realize that we are weak but it's when we realize our weakness and our need for Jesus that we can, in fact, be made strong. Many of you have heard about Jesus, just like this centurion did. When will you come and appeal so that Jesus can come and heal? Let me show you this last one. Number four this is it. I learned this about faith, too. Genuine faith always relies on Jesus's authority Oh man, don't miss the end of this encounter because it's beautiful. Verse, rest of verse eight and verse nine, but the centurion replied, look back at it. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm not worthy, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Listen, Jesus merely had to say a word, and the servant would be healed. The centurion understood what control meant, because he too could say a word, and those under his control would do it. However, can I just point something out to you? Because it's beautiful. Listen to me. Jesus controlled more than just men. Amen? He could speak a word to anything, even sickness and disease, and it would have to obey him. Is that not incredible? The centurion realized in that moment, listen, my ability can tell one man to do this, and he has to do it. But Jesus's ability can look at sickness itself and speak to it as if it's a man under his authority, and it must listen to him. There's a translation of the New Testament. It's called the voice translation. I was reading verse number nine in it. Here's how it reads in that translation. That, after all, is how authority works. My troops obey me whether I am next to them or not. This sickness will obey you. Listen, the authority of Jesus knows no bounds. Diseases obey him. Demons obey him. Disasters obey him. Death obeys him. Seriously, what can Jesus not do? I learned something important in this moment. Jesus doesn't have to be present physically to accomplish his purposes powerfully. He doesn't. He doesn't have to be present physically to accomplish his purposes powerfully. He can speak right now into any life and make everything right. And listen, when Jesus heard this, this statement, this is when he marveled and said to those who followed him, this is in verse 10, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. You know there's only two times that Jesus mentions being marveled or amazed or wondered by faith. There's this moment from a Gentile Roman centurion that Jesus is marveled because he's impressed by this guy's faith. But in Mark 6, 6, he's also amazed by faith, but in that case, he marvels by the lack of faith from his own people. And in this case, he marvels at the faith of someone else. And this is why he says at the end of this account, don't miss this, 11 and 12, this is why he makes these statements. 
I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Who is those from the east and the west? Well, that's anybody. Refers to any people other than the Jewish nation that will be in eternity with him because they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Well, the east and the west is a contrast between the sons of the kingdom. One refers to all people that are not Jewish. The other one refers to the many Jews who will be excluded from heaven because of their lack of faith without believing in Jesus. He says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What I think is awesome is that it doesn't matter who you are. Those who appealed are those who are healed. And so he says in verse 13, he wraps it up. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus told him, let it be done for you. Listen, when your ability runs out, Jesus's ability keeps going. There are plenty of things that we can't do on our own, that we can't do for ourselves, but Jesus says that it can be done for you. You have the option. You can try to take control of everything completely, or you can give up completely because you can't control anything, but you could make a third option. You could allow Jesus to be the one who has complete control over you. Listen, when we get to the point in our lives where we let our ability to control run out and embrace a third option, that is the moment when we truly surrender to Jesus. Danny, can I control everything? Nope, your ability runs out. Danny, should I give up completely? No, 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 there are some things that you can do. So what should I do, Danny? Here's what you should do. This is your ability, you ready? Lean into Jesus because he can do all of it. Your ability may run out. His ability never does. So faith, listen to me, faith according to what I've learned from this encounter is this. Trusting that Jesus has the authority, no matter how hopeless a situation may look or how unworthy a person may be to do all that he says. I want to share that with you again. What is faith according to this encounter? Here it is. It's trusting that Jesus has the authority, no matter how hopeless a situation may look or how unworthy a person may be, to do all that he says. You know what he says, friends? He says he can save you. The question is this, will you give up your control and place your faith in Jesus. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Will you give him the authority over your life to do whatever he wills and desires to do through you? Listen, you might be here this morning and you might say, Danny, I've never surrendered my life to Jesus. Here's what I would say to you. You can keep trying it on your own. You can keep fighting. You can keep struggling. You can keep trying to do it and work and, 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 and stress and, 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 and fight and, and whatever else you want to do. You can keep trying. Listen, if that's how you want to do, God allows you to do that. You can make that choice today and decide to keep trying to do it on your own. But can I tell you something? Eventually, I don't care how good it's been so far, eventually your ability will run out. What you going to do then? Well, can I give you a better option? What if instead you decided that Jesus would be the right person to have authority over your life? I know it seems easier if you could control it all, or I know it seems easier if you just give up and don't care. I know one of those seems like the only options that you have, but here's the truth. There's a better option. 
What if the one who knows you better than you know you? What if the one who's created everything? What if the one who knows exactly what needs to happen in your life, who's planned it out, who's got a purpose? What if that was the one that you gave authority so that you could make the right decision, so that you could follow the way, so that you could do, so that you could be? What if instead of relying on yourself, it's got to be exhausting? What if instead you came to Jesus appealing to him and said, look, I've ran out. I got nothing else to offer. I can't do it on my own. What what can I do? Can I tell you something? Jesus can take all that you can't do. And he can do so much more because listen, when your ability runs out, his ability doesn't. The question is this, what's the one thing that you can control? You can control right now your response to him. Are you gonna respond in a way that says, Jesus, I want you to have authority over my life? Now, for those who don't know Jesus, that means surrendering your life to him to say, you know what? I can't do it. I need Jesus to save me from my sins. Listen, for the many believers who are in this room, and listen, there's a bunch of you. It's exciting to see all of your faces. Always love it. I would ask you, I'd ask you this. That one thing, that issue, that problem, that thing you think you can do, that thing you think you can fix, that thing that you've been struggling with and you've been trying and you've been, what would happen? if you decided that if Jesus was good enough for you to surrender the authority of your life to, he's probably good enough for me to surrender the authority to this situation. What would happen if we decided as a people that in everything, we're gonna rely on the one whose ability never runs out? What if instead of trying to do things ourselves, what if we relied, rested, remained, abided? What if we gave it to Jesus and allowed him control over our lives? Can I tell you something? You know what wouldn't make a better place out of this world? If you had control. I know that seems a little harsh, but can I tell you something? It wouldn't be better if I had control either. You know what would be awesome about this world? Is if Jesus had control. Hey, can I tell you something, friends? What if that control started with every person in this room? as we decided that the control of Jesus over this world started right now with us. My ability runs out, his doesn't. Why don't we give him authority? Father, we love you, thank you, praise you, Jesus, you're awesome. Thank you, God.